Dear listener, we hope that you've been enjoying the variety of podcasts that we have on our network. Now is your opportunity to help us by telling us a little more about you. Please visit jcastnetwork.org survey and complete our listener survey so that we can learn more about you and your listening habits. Again, please visit jcastnetwork.org survey. Thanks so much. You are listening to The Tish with Rabbi Michael Knopf, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about Rabbi Michael Knopf, please visit mikeknopf.com. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. All right, so we are going to be looking at uh, Birkat Kohanim, the Priestly Blessing. Uh, and uh, um, we, we might as well uh, look at it in its original context first. But uh, before we do, just a couple of things. The first is um, that as a, a priestly blessing obviously comes from Torah, comes from the book of Deuteronomy, uh, book of Numbers, uh, but um, it is a fairly ubiquitous Jewish blessing. Right, so you probably heard it intoned in any number of contexts. Um, if we do, if we ever did a repetition, a repetition of the Amida, it would come at the end of the repetition of the Amida. Um, even if we don't have uh, what's known as duchening, which are priests actually standing up on the bima. Um, uh, reciting the priestly blessing, which in in places like Jerusalem, in Jerusalem, they, uh, there's a tradi- there's a custom to duchen every day. Um, uh, in in the diaspora, the custom is to duchen only on um, the shalosh regalim and the high holidays. Uh, we do it here on the high holidays, uh, although we really probably should do a better job training our kohanim to do it. We do that. Yeah, we, um, <laughs> we I said that last year too. I was like, I was like, we should do a better job training our kohanim. And I'm like totally forgot about it until like like five minutes before, and I said, "Oh, I forgot to train the Kohanim." Uh, yeah, maybe. Yeah. Remind me after you. We have all of them identified. We don't have that many. There are more than show up for duchening because it's like kind of late in the service and. Um, anyway, I work Kohanim. I show up every time. I know. I think it's really cool. I, I like. I love. If I were Kohen, I'd be wanting my Kohen Aliyah. It's one of the things that like I loved most about like daily davening in Jerusalem was like daily davening. You were at the conservative yeshiva, right? Yeah, yeah. They yeah. yeah. daven all the time. So anyway, so it's a so um so it's it's a part of the repetition of the Amida. Um, it uh, um, uh, it's commonly recited at Jewish life cycle ceremonies, at uh, weddings and and brises and uh, b'nai mitzvah. We chant it here, not everywhere necessarily, but uh, we at least do it here. Um, it's something that parents uh, use to bless their children on uh, Friday and uh, on Shabbat and, and holiday evenings. Um, for those who are not yet married in the in, in the crowd um, or without <laughs> kids yet, um, it is a uh, practice. What? But I'm also talking in cyberspace here. So, so anyway, it's a it's a practice that I commend. Um, having children. Having children and blessing them. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So the, the, uh, what I think is what I think is amazing about Birkat Kohanim, though, is that um, especially given how ubiquitous it is, um, is that it is um, perhaps the oldest known prayer that we have in the Jewish tradition. Um, so if you if you take the um, uh, the source critical approach to the Bible, that the Bible wasn't written as a unity, um, that it was sort of pieced together over over time. Uh, the oldest um, archaeological evidence we have of biblical text is a, uh, a, a piece of silver found at uh, um, a place called Ketef Chinom near Jerusalem, um, which is uh, uh, likely made in the late 7th century BCE, um, inscribed with the words of the priestly blessings. This is the oldest piece of biblical text ever discovered. Um, so not only is it a very common prayer, and you know, use in a lot of context, but it's also uh, possibly the oldest prayer that we have. Um, I curiosity, what was the coin for? Any idea? What was the coin? I don't know. Oh. Yeah. 
I think it was probably like a piece of jewelry or like an amulet or something like that. Like a protective. Yeah. Like people wear a high. Now. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, so the, the, the meaning of the prayer, or the meaning of the blessing is actually kind of enigmatic, right? Both within its, con- within its context, it just sort of appears and it doesn't really have any real connection to what comes before or after. Um, and, you know, it's one of these passages that, like, I know what all the words mean, but I don't really know what it's trying to express. Live long and prosper. Right. Well, that I mean, the live long and prosper is um, a, a in, in some ways, like a summation of the priestly blessing, right? That's where uh, Leonard Nimoy got it from. Um, it's just beautiful. But so, so I, I, I thought that we would just take a moment to look at it in context, and you can um, uh, tell me what you think it means and, uh, and any questions that arise uh, to you from it. Can I uh, chant it? Yeah, sure. Please. Sure. Yeah. Right. So, 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 five ninety four. It's it's uh, uh, Numbers chapter six, verse twenty two. <laughs> Elecha vihuneka, Isa Adonai Panam Elecha, Beasemacha Shalom. You Probably so far, yeah. There. Okay. yeah. Um, Thank you. That was that was strangely satisfying. Good. Beautiful. Um, right, and uh, we can read. We usually don't do it in the Hebrew. We usually do it in the English. At the end of services, yeah, we do. But we also do. We do it in the Hebrew in some other places. We do yeah, it. Uh, mitzvah, yeah. yeah. Mitzvah, um, yeah. In a repetition of the Amida. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, Bree, will you read it in the English though, or at least the the, uh, the Hertz's to, English translation, uh, verse twenty? Start at twenty-two. Yeah. Okay. And go. All go to where Hazan went at yeah, the top of uh, five ninety-six. Yeah. Okay. And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, Speak unto Aaron and unto his sons, saying, On this wise ye shall bless the children of Israel. Ye shall say unto them, The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face shine upon thee and be gracious to thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. So shall they put my name upon the children of Israel, and I will bless them. So, um, any like preliminary thoughts, interpretations, comments on this? My first thought, just looking a little bit before that, is when in the days of the temple was it pronounced every day, or was it pronounced just every time we had a nazir wrapping up there? Because we're coming out of the nazir time. Yeah, I think it's. I think it's something. I think it's something. I think it's something distinct from the nazir. Okay. I think because you have the blessing to do after a nazir finishes, because the nazir's merit perhaps allows us to ask for an additional blessing upon the people would have been my first thought just based on context. You know, listen, I mean, that's, so, that's, that's certainly a possibility. I mean, there's all sorts of ways that you can interpret the passage. It feels like both in Naso and Baha'u there are passages like this that, like, my sense is like my sense of like the Torah's editorial process is that the editors of the Torah had passages that were um, well known and had like sort of ancient authority, and they like needed to put them in, but they didn't really go anywhere, you know. So they're like, okay, we're just gonna stick it in here, like you're right. Um, um, there's also you know like the Vayibin Sa'aron Vayomer Moshe Kumar Navi Aputo that's that thing, um, uh, which is next week, which is Bahalotcha. Um, uh, is also one of these things that, like, it, I mean, it sort of goes along with that passage because it's about the camp getting up and moving, um, but it, it doesn't exactly fit. Yeah. Um, yeah. Can you look at 23? It's, speak unto Aaron and unto his son, saying, on this wise... Yeah, that means, like, in this, in this way. 
Okay, because the yeah, the it's just one. it's just it's just ancient uh, English, uh, old English, so right? Is it otherwise? Yeah. Elsewise. So in this way, you shall bless it. You shall bless it. No, it's it's on this wise, in this way, right? Wise's way. Could the the Hebrew is kodevarchu. Thus shall you bless. Thus shall you bless. Right. Thus shall you bless. Kodevarchu Israel Amorlam. Thus shall you bless the children of Israel. Say to them. And the other thing that surprised me was um, twenty six. The the Lord lift up his countenance upon thee mm-hmm. and give peace to thee. Would you translate that? that yeah, well, uh, so how I usually translate it in service is, is uh, see, I say, uh, may the Lord bless you and protect you, Lord. Um, smile. smile upon you and be gracious to you, Lord. Look upon you with favor and grant you peace. Okay, I'll get to that in, in a few minutes. So, okay. um, but the literal translation, Yisaz, lift up, uh, Adonai, God, Hanav, God's face, uh, Elecha, to you. May God lift God's face to you. The height thing is weird to me. Well, well that's assuming the God's up there and we're down here. Which is what most of the other prayers say, right? Well, <laughs> so, so... I never really thought about it that way, but yeah, I guess well, you're so, right. Well, yeah. So one thing that strikes me, I mean, and also it struck me hearing it chanted, is that it seems to me almost as though this is the, in the in the poetic in the poetic tradition we often have the like phrasing and rephrase and it seems to me like we have a a initial prayer and then we have the same prayer to, the same blessing twice that the second and third that Yair Hashem Panav Elecha Vayikunecha is is the same and we're just going to rephrase it with Yisah Hashem Panav Elecha right. So, um, and, and, and I want to I want to add to that because I saw Thad counting on your fingers. What were you counting? The words. And how and how many words are in each part of this? Three, five, and seven. Three, five, and seven. And that matters. The parts. Are you are you about to cover that? What, do you have a theory about that? I've been reading the. <laughs> <laughs> That's what does Hertz say about it? <laughs> Uh, uh, the Hebrew text consists of three short verses of three, five, and seven words, respectively. It mounts by gradual stages from the petition for material blessing and protection to that for divine favor as a spiritual blessing, and beautiful climax culminates in the petition for God's most consummate gift, shalom, peace, right. the welfare in which all material and spiritual well-being is comprehended. Right. So the um, so the the it's designed to uh, to sort of build on uh, on itself and have sort of like an interlocking kind of structure, right? So it, it almost see. I mean, it depends on how you look at it. I mean, either it could be sort of like a ladder or stairway or maybe even a spiral. Um, that's kind of the structure. It's self-referential. Uh, what's that? A spiral stairway. A spiral stairway, yeah, like in the Guggenheim. Ah, or not the Guggenheim. The yeah, yeah, the yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, well, it's more like a ramp, but yeah. Where else did I see something like that? It's like Michelangelo's stairways. Is it the Vatican? Anyway, whatever. Um, okay, so... Uh, the, other, the other thing that strikes yeah. me is that we're in the singular. Right. Despite it saying... Right. Kodzebrahu and B'nai Yisrael are more lahem. And then it says Yivrechacha. Exactly, right? It, it moves to the singular. And then it goes back in the in the next piece, V'samu et Shemi, of B'nai Yisrael v'ani avarchem. Right? And I will bless so the, them. The descriptor, in the descriptors were the plural, right. but in the actual plural. Now, the, the, uh, the, the part of the passage that was found in Ketachinam is just... The the, um, the those middle three verses, so right? Blessing uh, the blessing itself. So it's it's also possible that the beginning and ending lines are sort of editorials, right? Yeah. Um, so you know what? Can I interject for the question here? Or yeah. Um, so no, no, I cannot. Um, Honestly. <laughs> I gotta be honest with you. I don't want you to interject this matter. Shush, y'all. <laughs> well, you know, Robert, I gotta be honest with you. I really care what you think. This is what happens when they start drinking alcohol. I'm not. I have not had any alcohol to drink. So, so the issue, the issue of the um, 
the grammar, okay? I've, I've done the priestly blessing in hospital settings and in other settings, and I don't change the language for the gender of the person. Right. And the reason why I don't is because I feel like I'm taking something directly from the Torah. Mm-hmm. So I just oh. use it the way it is. Am I right? <laughs> but that's that okay? an interesting point. Is it do in the people... masculine? Yeah, yeah even, even uh, when you, you do Kisar of Karach of Alea. Right. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't change it when I when I bless Lila. Okay. Yeah. Um, I think that's pretty, that's that's pretty standard. I, I've never even okay. thought of that before, but that's true. Sorry if that's a dumb question. No, it's a perfectly, it's not, it's a perfectly question. legitimate question. Yeah, it's it's a good question. Um, uh, I, I I think that I'm uncomfortable changing the way. I mean, the, the sort of like gender specificity of it is is a little bit disconcerting. But like, but I'm uncomfortable, you know, uh, adapting it for whatever the purpose. The words I'm using. of the blessing on your children doesn't. It changes for girls. Well, well yeah, the, the, the introduction other, other, like a friend Manasa versus may God make you like Sarah, Rivka, Rachel, and Leah. That one does uh, change. But when it says you, it is the masculine you. May God shine his face upon you. Right. So it's, masculine you, even though you then cite Well, no, 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 that's a, that's a different, well, because that's going to seem, that one, I mean, at least in my family, for we, we for my sister, it was Yosemite, Kassar, uh, right, that's the introduction. But that's the introduction. Right. But, right. Well, uh, so, but, but you don't say Yisimcha? For, for the female. Do you say Yisimcha? For, for Yisimcha. Yes, Yisimcha. Okay. For, I was just wondering. So in my family, it's interesting talking about because in my family, my, my family never had the tradition of doing the Gerd Kohani on Friday nights. Mm-hmm. We did only... Oh, you just did Yasim Yasim Okay. Um. So, 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 I mean, so that never came up. I mean, I mean, because you do, you do adjust in that one for for. That's the just the program. intro, right? That's not well, the actual. Well, if you're not doing your Yerkat Kohani, that's the entirety. Right, right, right. And so, from my perspective, growing up. That was not an intro. That was that was the that was the blessing. That was the well. <laughs> it was a wonderful blessing. <laughs> or, or, well, one could argue for my sister it was actually a fourfold blessing because I don't think most people view the blessing on a five and the blessing on Menashe as being distinct. Right. But I think the blessings on Sarah, Ruka, Rachel, Leah could be viewed as distinct. Sure. Yeah. Um, may I read the comment on section twenty-four to answer his question about the singular? Sure. Um, the. Why is the singular used? Our current explanation is, as the prerequisite of all blessing for Israel is unity, all Israel is to feel as one organic body. So if it's a blessing on the Israel collective, then that would also explain why, yeah. if, you continue, if you continue to view yourself as a blessing the Israel collective, whatever you use it, right, the, then what, you, that you wouldn't change right. the gender, because the, the Israel collective is... Right. is is our <laughs> is the and, patriarch? Yeah, right. And Hebrew goes for masculine. Well, well, it's also well, no, but it's also but if if you view it as Israel, I mean, the Israel collective is named for Israel for Yaakov, mm. right? Who is masculine? So we don't even need to go to the, what's our default. It's right. Yisrael is a guy. And subsumed in into yes. him, <laughs> right? Fair. But it's, but what's but what's interesting about it is that it's. Kutzvachu b'nei Yisrael amor lahem, right? If yeah. if Hertz is right about that, then the introduction should have been Kutzvarech um, et Yisrael, right? Or at Am Yisrael even, right? Yeah. Um, uh, so anyway, it's a, it's a it's an interesting point. What? Uh, let me ask this: um, Who's Who's doing the blessing? What's the source of the blessing? And what's the blessing uh, yearning for, well, asking for? So, I mean, I think we have an interesting dichotomy in our in our language when we talk about these as being blessings. Because, fundamentally, who is doing the blessing? The blessing is actually happening after this text, in, in that, in that, in that codicil. Because the fundamental oh, person who's doing the blessing is Hashem. So shall you put the name of the Lord onto them, and I will bless them. No. I mean, you, you, will, say, you will say these things. Well, I mean, this is maybe making a, a side point. The priests say this. Right, exactly, right. So when you say, what's the blessing? I mean, we talk about it as Birkat Kohanim. No, but Rabbi but asked, who's doing the blessing? But who is doing, who blesses? God blesses after we request. 
this blessing. That may be a, a, a linguistic nuance, but we, all of this is requesting that God bless. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, so when you say who is doing the blessing, the Kohanim are pronouncing this threefold request, but God is doing the blessing. I think this is a, a, a common feature in, in all of Jewish liturgy, that either we bless God, or God blesses us, or we ask God to bless others. All blessing that I can think of in our liturgy goes from human to God. And sometimes it goes from human to God, and God willing, back down to human. Mm-hmm. We, we, I never bless someone else. Right. I request that God bless But you. are you saying this is... This, are you pointing but the, that it's well, singular? That it's well, well, I'm. I don't know what I, exactly what I point out. I'm just trying to answer <laughs> the question: Who is question. blessing? God is blessing. We are the Kohanim are asking God to bless. So, it's just a feature of Hebrew blessings generally that they're either blessing God, right, like the Motzi, or they're God blessing us, or they're us asking God to bless. Others. So maybe I'm being literal, but it it says in here quite explicitly, "Daber el Haron ve'el banav lemor kotevarhu et bnei Israel amor lahem." Yes. Right. You shall tell Aaron that you yes. shall bless the people. Right. So I feel like. The answer... <laughs> but, that, but, that, but 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 I see what Ben is saying. Right. But then it goes Yivarecha Adonai v'Yishmarach. And the codicil is so shall you put their name upon the children of Israel. And I will bless them. All right, so it's the the priests as the sort of conduit of God's blessing. They pull it down on our behalf, right? But my question is, why do we need the push? Why do you need the priests? Why do we need? Well, why do we need the intermediary? Right. Right. Well, I mean, I, it, I, well, I guess for me, the real question is if. If the Torah is telling us that we need an intermediary, right, then what is the function of that? Why do we, right? So I'm not just saying, well, why do we, right, not just to be defiant, but what is the function well, of that? Well, so, or to look at it differently, perhaps, this blessing, unlike other blessings that we have, this request, God explicitly says he will grant. If you right. do it in this form, I will bless them. Hmm. This is one of the few cases that right. I can think of. And normally we're very reluctant to say that if you ask God to do something, right. it will it happen. Will happen. Right. If you use the magic words, this will happen. Right. But in this case, that's exactly yeah, what's happening. Right. Right. We're saying, if the Kohanim say this, then I will bless them. Um, but and it's also interesting to me, I mean, and I guess this also partially comes, as I said before, from the fact that my that that my parents didn't use the Birkat Kohanim on Friday nights, and that actually is that I actually have a certain degree of discomfort mm-hmm. with you doing the Birkat Kohanim because yeah. when we do it in the repetition, there's the additional oh, right. oh, there's the additional like paragraph. paragraph that says, "May you bless us as the as, Kohanim," right, right. and I really want that paragraph personally. Yeah, I think yeah. that I, I because my parents didn't bless me with it. Like, to me, that the Birkat Kohanim either requires the introductory paragraph, may you bless us as the Kohanim asked you to in days of old, blah, 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 right. blah, blah, or needs to be done by Kohanim. Right. Qualifier. I'm so it's, a, it's, it's partially why I only do, or generally only do that in English, in, in English right? But, yeah, but I, I, I think that's valid. I think that's valid. <laughs> Um, so I mean I think that there's I mean there's another dimension of it I mean in general that makes me sort of questioning or, or a little bit uncomfortable I mean the the um, the underlying theological premise right that um, that the right cluster of words and phrases uttered by the right people at the right time will persuade an impassable omniscient and omnipotent deity to change the trajectory of a person or a nation's life is a little bit suspect, I think. Mm. Um, and so, and so that's one of the, the lenses through which I approach this prayer is like, is, is wondering about that. So some of you know that I'm, um, really influenced by an approach to, um, comprehending our reality known as process thought. Um, and process thought 
was originally developed in the early uh, 20th century by a British philosopher named Alfred North Whitehead. Uh, and uh, what process thought argues is that God is neither supernatural nor coercive. Discuss. Discuss, yeah. <laughs> uh, and God we, is not supernatural, okay? God is not super, supernatural or coercive. Um, so God, that means God cannot, cannot, not just will not, cannot violate the laws of nature or force a desired outcome. Okay. God is not supernatural. God is not supernatural. Well, God is super comma natural exclamation point, but God is not supernatural. Well, well I've, if you I've, created the natural law, then in theory you set it up for a reason. Um, okay, that's one way of looking at it. I think the process thinkers would say that there is sort of a... Um, um, uh, a What's the word I'm looking for? Um... Uh, um, like an interrelationship between God creating reality and reality creating God. And I have often said that I see no problem with God being able to use natural events and be and be able to use science but in sure. order to accomplish God's goals. I, Why can't God what, use a meteor what, in order to? Do something. Well, Why does God I, I, I think magically that, I make think, it disappear? Right. But what, I, I, so what this is saying, what this is saying is that is that God doesn't directly uh, uh, control nature in that way. He's not going to make a meteor fall on you because you're a bad person. You should die. Or but, because God has a particular reason for a meteor to fall. Right. Do you believe yeah. the ten plagues happened? Uh, no, probably not. But I'm not sure okay. that the Exodus happened either. So that's okay. the <laughs> oh my god, my rabbi said that. <laughs> um, um, I mean, on the other hand, you could say each one of the ten plagues is has been explained by science, and the, the yeah. Although, that, what, that, I, what, that, I say, what I would say, what I would say is that undercuts the the message of the plagues. Well, the I think the well, miracle is that they all happened right in a row. Well, so the <laughs> process thinking, as far as I can tell, would have a problem with the idea that the ten plagues happened, whether it comes through natural processes or not, is the coercive piece, not the supernatural right. piece. Right. And I also think that from what you were saying, and I, I, I personally don't agree with process thinking, um, but I think the other piece is that what you were saying is that God can and may choose to operate. I don't, whereas do, you, process, do you know of a reason that God, that? Well, no, I agree with you. That an, an, an omnipotent being could not use. No, I, abs- I absolutely right, agree. So, uh, so thinking is, is not merely saying that he chooses to operate in that way, but is going the step further, which I disagree with. That he cannot right. choose so to operate what, what, in a different way. Right. So what process thinking uh, uh, argues is that. Um, well, there's, I think, two pieces. The first is that um, omnipotence is in itself a sort of logical contradiction. There's no such thing as omnipotence. Um, but the second piece is that, uh, and this is unique to Jewish process thought, um, is that omnipotence is um, a foreign idea to, uh, to Jewish tradition. Because God remembered the covenant with Jacob. Well, so what does right. it, if, God, if God is not coercive, what does it mean to say that God brought us out of the land of Egypt, whether literally or metaphorically? Well, I mean, so so because that that so metaphorically, that, metaphorically, it's that that, uh, that that God is the um, the 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 power. It's sort of like Kaplan says, right? God is the power that makes for salvation, right? God is the uh, aspect of reality that draws people toward uh, fighting for their own redemption. Right, so God. It's like a good impulse. Exactly. Right. So that and the, the process thinkers would call that the lure. Right. So um, so they say God doesn't coercive power. God has persuasive power. Right. Um, so in each moment we're met with any number of choices and only some options will lead toward greater love, justice, experience, and compassion. And process thinkers say that those options represent God's lure, right? Um, they represent God's attempt to invite or persuade us to choose the best possible option held out before us in each moment. Isn't there something in 
the Torah about this, about God calling out to us still from Sinai? Well, it's not in the Torah, uh, but the, so um, it's in the Talmud. It's in the, what's it right? Midrash is in the Talmud, right? So it's in B'chol Yom V'yom, Ba'at Kol Yotzeh Mehar Chorev Omer Shuvu Banim Shovim. Right, that uh, each and every day a divine voice uh, uh, calls out from uh, from Sinai saying, return wayward children. Right. Um, Sinai's not in Israel. <laughs> did I say some? No, no you said but it's calling from Sinai to return. But Sinai... He's not saying to return to Israel, it's just saying to return. To return okay. to God. To return to God. Okay. Right. Um, but Sinai been in ancient Israel? I know it's not in modern day Israel. Oh... Sure, Israel can conquer the whole world. Why not? <laughs> so, sorry, that's a useless segue. Yeah. <laughs> the, Davidic, um, the Davidic Empire mostly, if I remember correctly, extended up northeast further, mm. north and east, way further right. than modern Israel. Not it southwest. Yeah, yeah, it made it. Didn't it make it all the way to the Euphrates? Uh, I don't know. I don't if know Davidic dynasty went that far yet, but it definitely made it well into Lebanon and, of course, into Transjordan. So, so if if. Anyway, if, that, if that's what God is, right, then then prayer, uh, in that view, can't be about persuading God to intervene in our lives because God doesn't intervene in our lives in that way. Yeah. So then, what? So in that case, uh, prayer or religion in general is about um, uh, recognizing and following the divine lore when we encounter it. Right? And so, in that sense, prayer becomes um, about centering ourselves. Is what. Uh, Rabbi Brad Arthur says, centering ourselves with God at the core, rather than attempting to convince the supernatural power to break the rules of the cosmos on our behalf. Praying opens our eyes to God's lure and inspires us to follow it. Praying on behalf of others in their presence invites those others to engage in that same process of centering vision and inspiration. Okay, so that's what prayer is ultimately about from this vantage point. That which, which you... Believe in and share. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Do you say Barapria AIDS or Barapria Guffin when you're by yourself? I do. Okay. Um, but I actually, I mean, I don't think that those, that, that's a different form of prayer, right? I see, I see those as sort of an acknowledgement, right? Of what? Of God's creation of the world. God being defined as. What do you mean? I thought you just defined God as. I do think that God is the creative force in the universe. I just don't think of God in um, in, in coercive. Uh, um, well, isn't the creation of the world fundamentally coercive? That's an, that's an interesting point. I mean, like what I would say is that the creation in itself. I mean, we don't really know exactly um, uh, what creation, the creation was. Was per- persuasive. God I think I think, that, I think that I think that God's things to I think that God's role within creation is fundamentally persuasive. So I'm not positive that God well, initiated creation. That God contracts to make room. Then that's not quite the same thing as bam. Well, it, it can be both. I mean, like if I clear a I, if I if I clear a space in my bedroom to build a fort. I clear the space first, and that's persuasive, and then I build the pillow fort, and that's coercive. Right, so the... the so it's so the, the same cha- thing as making room in, for a new friend in your life, right? Like, you well, except, make the space, but that... Well, that I, it's somewhat, it's, it's, it's somewhat different. Well, no, I mean... I mean... If I have a kid, for example, I'll build, I'll make out their nursery. That's persuasive, and then my spouse will give birth to them. That's coercive. <laughs> that's not asking them to be born. I, I, listen, I mean, exactly. I, yeah. in your in your house when you're when you're gonna you know be with a significant other, you don't just clear a drawer and wait for that significant other to show up. You know, <laughs> it's like okay, I've got a drawer clear. They're gonna show up at some point. It's an invitation. <laughs> yeah, I don't know about it. <laughs> Well, right. So, the, I so that's. I, I think it's more like the birth. But like, <laughs> but but going out, going out and finding a a partner and courting them is not. It's not I mean, persuasive. Well, no, if it's, no, courting is if it's not coercive, coercive, then we have a huge problem. Right. Courting is persuasive. <laughs> no, but I, but I think that it, I, but the but but birth. Is coercive, yeah, that's a, that, that's a good point, Ben. I mean, I'm not sure if I would totally agree with that. Um, I think that there is. I think it certainly can be uh, 
understood that way or, or conceived of that way. Um, no pun intended. Uh, but they, right. But they, uh, <laughs> Good. The conceiving should have been persuasive. <laughs> so I think when you when you think about it in, in, in terms of God, I mean, what, what process thought would say, I think, is that um, all we can know um, is is what's knowable through scientific discovery. Yeah. Um, or at the very least... Um, if there's something that we know from tradition that either, you know, contradicts or, um, or, or says something that like can't be verified scientifically or can't align. I think we're dealing with a coronal case of creation. Right. So, so, so like, so science doesn't know what happened before the big bang. Yeah. Right. Um, it only knows what happened in the instant after the big bang. So I don't know. There was another universe before. There's a theory. Maybe there was, maybe there wasn't. I mean, actually the Midrash talks about that, right? That, that God created and destroyed lots of worlds before creating this and uh, creating this one. But, um, what I, what I mean to say, this universe collapsed there'll be another one. <laughs> maybe. Um, Probably persuasive, of course. <laughs> well, I mean, it, okay. okay. Well, so I, I think that maybe maybe the better way of saying it then is um, the, uh, the, but I still think this is a, a question of, of can't rather than won't. The, um, uh, the way God relates to this reality dating as far back as the creation of this reality from the instant after creation began. Is God sentient? Um, so God has consciousness in prompt in process thought. Um, but, uh, but, but God's consciousness, um, uh, develops and increases and grows more complex over time as consciousness itself develops and grows complex and more complete over time. That would align with your thought that God knows what you're going to choose. No, I, I haven't fully processed this view yet. Sorry. I, 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 can't, I, can't, I can't tie it. Yeah. Um, so, but anyway, let, let's just... Um, let's just like hold that, okay? We can, we can, we can, we can, process theology might be like a whole other class that we, we had do. to bring it up, right. Rabbi. I had to bring it up because it's, it's the prism through which I view this particular okay. blessing, okay? And so that's, I think that the priestly blessing, and this is the, from all the questions and, and, and commentary that we had before, which were all questions and commentary that I always had in thinking about. So when I, I became persuaded by process thought largely because of my teacher, uh, Brad Artson, um, and, uh, and I had this opportunity to kind of, uh, think about the priestly blessing and, and to write a, 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 a paper about it. Um, and, uh, and, and, and I realized I had all of these questions about it, right. And, uh, um, you know, the theological questions, the syntactical questions, what exactly it's, uh, um, praying for and, and why it's put in the, in the words of the priests and, and why, why specifically the priests, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. So these are all the questions I had. So, so from my, from my thinking, the priestly blessing is fundamentally about aligning ourselves with God's will and enhancing the power of God's lure in our lives. To achieve that, the priestly blessing asserts that while its words are to be uttered by the priests, God is its author. So the priestly blessing is, in effect, a concrete expression of the divine lure. Right? The, pre- the priests speak it, or, or, or transmit it, but it's God's words, right? That's the, that's the introduction. Right? God says this, priests, take these words that I'm giving you and you say this to the people, right? These are not the priest's words, these are God's words. So it's an expression of the divine lure. Its words embody what God wants for us. Right. Um, which is different, I think, than like what when we would pray for like a friend or something like that who's ill or something like that. Right. That's more of an expression of what we want for them. Right. This is an expression of what God wants for us transmitted through the priests who are speaking it. Uh, they reflect a set of choices God hopes we will make. So the choices are phrased as though they're gifts God might bestow as an act of supernatural power and grace. But I think upon deeper examination, uh, we will find that they're actually gifts we can only attain through our own deeds. Um, 
the other thing which people notice about the um, structure of the blessing is that the choices are in a successive interlocking series. Right? The choices and the actions they lead to build upon and re- reinforce each other. Right? They're not separate from each other. They're interconnected. You can't reach the next step in the blessing without first having accomplished the preceding step. And later progress can be undermined if the recipient shirks a prerequisite. So the structure evokes the process insight that with each successive act of following God's lore, we increase our ability to discern it in the future and enhance its persuasive power over our actions. That's what I meant before when I said I think God grows more conscious over time because consciousness breeds consciousness. Um, and I think that that's the same with us. As we, as we habituate ourselves to make godly choices, we become increasingly more likely to make godly choices. So do you believe that God uh, listens to supplications? Uh, not in the anthropomorphic way that you probably mean that phrase. But so how do you interpret Tefillat HaTerech? How do I interpret Tefillat HaTerech? Right, What's the purpose of inter- Yashem and Tal as well? Right, I- interpreting all of those other prayers will be will need to be other classes okay. to interpret all those other prayers. Right, you got to focus on one prayer at a time. Uh, but maybe as I like uh, um, without art of God who listens to prayers I understand what the prayer says um, uh, it doesn't mean he does stuff with it it just means he hears them oh, okay um, <laughs> right but again so you, um, what I'm about to say is that this prayer says I'm not positive that God does those things in a literal sense okay. right so um, so then if that's not true then how can we understand this prayer right that, if that's not what God does, then how do you understand this prayer? Um, so the priestly blessing, this is the, the essence of it, right? The priestly blessing offers a challenge to follow God's lure. It outlines how following that lure enables a perpetually increasing ability to discern and make godly choices. And it shows how this process offers a path to better lives and a better world. Okay? So the first part of the blessing is Yivarecha Adonai. May God bless you. Okay, and as you probably, as some of you may have seen in the Hertz commentary, I actually don't diverge from uh, the traditional understanding of that. Uh, Yevrecha means, um, according to most of the traditional commentators, uh, material prosperity. Okay, so like when it's used in Genesis to Abraham, when God says, "I will bless you," the narrative goes on to specify that the meaning of that blessing is twofold: one, I will make of you a great nation, and I will make your name great. In Deuteronomy, to be blessed is to be given abounding prosperity in the issue of your womb, the offspring of your cattle, and the produce of your soil. It further means to be free from all sickness, to be victorious over enemies, and to have plentiful food, nice houses, and riches. It's fantastic. So it makes, to my mind, yeah, oh, it makes to my mind perfect sense for the priestly blessing to begin there. First, it's hard for a person to care about any other value if he or she is struggling to survive. Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Right, right, yeah. exactly, right? You know, if you're hungry, you're not really worried about being a good person. Well, yeah, you can't right? be self-actualized if you're starving. Exactly, right? So, and, and we have that uh, in, in Pirkei Avot, in, in the, elsewhere in the tradition. Rebbe ben Azariah says in the Mishnah, uh, En kemach en Torah. Right? We can't have we can't have Torah if we don't have flour, right? If we don't have bread, if we don't have income, whatever, right? But more pointedly, if the goal of the priestly blessing is to place a person on a path to discerning and following God's lure, prosperity is the easiest and best place to start. It's godly in the sense that if we understand God as the source of all life, then the most basic urging of the divine lure must be to live and to live as well as one possibly can. Um, right? The, the, the Torah is not an ascetic tradition. Right? There's no self-denial in, in the Jewish tradition. Well, except for the Nazir who comes right before this. I, well, that's actually an interesting connection here, right? And, and, and it may be a, 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 a subtle rejection of the institution of, uh, of the Nazarite, right? Um, the Nazarite is someone who, who uh, takes on you know, self-denial. Um, doesn't drink wine and doesn't cut their hair. Right. And- 
Right, so we have this in the tradition, right? The tradition says to choose life, and Maimonides says that all the Torah aims at the welfare of the body and the welfare of the spirit. Um, and uh, uh, right, uh, and so the Jewish tradition affirms that God invites us to live the best, healthiest, most successful, wealthiest lives possible. Um, it obviously has a moral code about how to do that, uh, uh, so as to avoid not doing that on the backs of other people, right? But still, right? There's, there, it's, it's not like you get bonus mitzvah points for like being poor and suffering your whole life, right? In Judaism, um, so the priestly blessing begins with health and prosperity because the pursuit of our own well-being is also more or less instinctive to most of us, right? It starts at the easiest place, right? Like this is, this, we can start. That's a good first step. Right? We want to do that anyway, most of us. We also have an impulse to self-destruction, too. We can get into Freud, that's all. Right? Um, but it's an aspect of God's lore that, for the most part, we have very little trouble following. Um, because God doesn't have coercive power or control over outcomes, God cannot ensure that wealth goes to the righteous and poverty to the sinful. However, the priestly blessing holds out the assertion that God invites us all to struggle for success and greatness. We're urged to continuously reach for the highest possible heights with God rooting for our success and doing everything possible to help us attain it. Right, so that so that to me is what one of the... What does it mean for him to be doing everything possible to attain this if he's non-coercive? Right. Well, God, God, God wants us to succeed, yeah, no, no, but God I, I can't get, make I get, us I get the succeed. Rooting, I get the right. rooting force part. Right. You, 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 you went beyond rooting force. You said doing everything possible to help us. What is the content of doing everything possible to help well, us? Well, it's everything possible, right? And so, what is that? Is setting that, good that, lives. That's not a null and set. And set up a world it. in which it's possible. That's not a null set. No, what I, is the... Well, so, I would, here? Well, so I would, well, so I think first of all, rooting for us is yeah. part of the realm of possibility, and actually has no. has real real impact. Um, but you made two statements here. Yeah. Um, but if you set up a world in which it's possible for us to attain that, so God, so in insofar as God is a lure, right? God yeah. is a, isn't uh, um, represents a drive or an impulse or a directionality toward flourishing. Um, then what God can possibly do is show us the way. Okay, so that's one of the things that God can possibly do. Alright, so we have Yevrecha, and then the second part of that phrase is Vishmarecha. Right? May God bless you and protect you. Okay? I think protection there is twofold. I think it's protection of and protection from prosperity. Okay, protection... Mm-hmm. Protection of prosperity is fairly simple, right? Like, and this is what Rashi says. Rashi first says, Yivrecha means that God should bless you with material gifts. And then says, Yishmarecha is, what good is all these nice blessings if bandits come and steal it? Right? Um, so we, we, we have uh, Yishmarecha after that as, as uh, saying that, uh, that, that um, uh, defending ourselves and, and protecting, taking steps to defend our, our material prosperity is an important thing. Um, but a lure that leads to greater love, justice, and compassion will not only invite us to protect ourselves, it also leads us to recognize the crucial limits to defending our own wealth. As much as protection in the priestly blessing refers to the protection of our own well-being, it also means protection from our wealth, at least in a spiritual and moral sense, because wealth, even though it's not inherently bad, it's, I think, inherently sort of more, or moral neutral, it can be morally toxic. Corrupt. What? And can corrupt. Right. Right. So wealthy. So this is uh, um, based on some like really interesting research that's out there. Wealthy people tend to give proportionately less to charity than poorer people. Uh, wealthy people, when they do give to charity, they tend to disproportionately give to institutions that serve their own interests and needs, like universities and museums and symphonies and things like that. I would say that you should. <laughs> Donate to things you agree with. It's not a matter of giving to things you agree with. It's a matter of giving to things that serve your own needs. That serve you and not are good but separate from stuff you want to use. Well, I mean, he said universities. How is somebody who's already got money going to benefit from a university getting money? Kids are going to go for free? 
on, if not for free. George your kids w. Are more, Bush is going to get to go to Yale? Your kids are more likely to get in. But with respect to symphonies, why donate to the local one? But, no, I mean, but everyone's more likely to donate to the local one than they are to, like, than to the you're, one in LA. You're not going to donate not, to no. a charity that does stuff for homeless people in your city. You're going to donate to the museum that you like to go have wine tastings with your friends. Right. Um, and there's one other piece of uh, uh, um, research that I found that um, the wealthy are slower to embrace compassion. I, I feel like I read an article about that. Yeah. So one reason that the uh, um, that the sociologists and psychologists say for this is that uh, in the process of trying to protect their wealth, uh, many people can cordon off themselves from disadvantaged people and places. Like Pharaoh, right? Like Pharaoh, or they they move to the they move to to uh, Midlothian or uh, Trump. No. <laughs> no, like forget Donald Trump, like 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 Richmond West Enders. I mean, like you know, um, right, no, sure. I mean, this is right. this is like in part why I think we should like uh, Turner's family, right? Well, it's, just, it's it's in part why I think that there's sort of like a like value proposition in um in in staying at this campus versus moving to Parham. Right. No, right? I guess. because what what's in what's embodied in this campus is that we're like. Part of a neighborhood, right? Right, mm-hmm. um, and in the other campus, we are like set off from oh. everybody else, yep. right? Can I get and, a So I think that <laughs> I, think there's, I think there's a, I think there's a value proposition to that. So um, and so when separated from need, we become ignorant of and indifferent to the desperation of others. And the more we see suffering, the more likely we are to try to alleviate it. Um. So wealthy people who live primarily among other wealthy people are less generous than wealthy people who live in more heterogeneous communities. Um, there is a, a great Talmudic passage that illustrates this, um, a story of Elijah who regularly goes and visits this pious man, um, but stops and refuses to visit the pious man when the pious man builds a fortified wall around his home. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, Elijah objected to the fortified wall, according to Rashi, because the wall prevented those inside the enclosure from hearing the voices of the poor people who might be crying out for help outside the enclosure. Um, by, by taking steps to protect his wealth, the pious man had closed himself off from the ability to hear people in need. I think that's um, um, an important text to study for any organization that is focused on devoting resources to security.